This is Carla Johnson, author of Rethink Innovation, how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Carla Johnson to talk about her new book, Rethink Innovation, how the world's most prolific innovators come up with great ideas that deliver extraordinary outcomes, published by Morgan James. Carla Johnson is an innovation and marketing expert, keynote speaker, and prolific author. Her work with Fortune 500 brands served as the foundation for many of her books, and having lived, worked, and studied on five continents, she's trained thousands of people how to rethink the work that they do and the impact that they can have. And her expertise is inspired and equipped leaders at all levels to embrace the thing we all are fearful of, change, to welcome new ideas and to transform their businesses. And interesting facts about Carla, based on a careful reading of her book. She grew up in a town of 1,000 people in rural Nebraska. When she was four years old, she was in the community fashion show. She's been known to doze off in big, soft, cushy chairs in coffee shops. And if you ever meet her in person, she's a hugger. Carla, congratulations on Rethink Innovation, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug, and I am giving you a ginormous virtual hug. Oh, thank you. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I've had one of those Carla Johnson hugs. Uh, I've met you at some conferences, and uh, all of that is true. All of that is true. A lot of your personality is in the book. A lot of fun to read. And when you open the book up, you see what other luminaries uh, endorse the book. And I was so uh, delighted to see several past guests from the Marketing Book podcast, uh, including uh, Dory Clark and Rebecca Lieb and Brian Kramer and Andrew Davis and Joseph Jaffe, just to drop a few names. And the foreword was written by Brian Solis, also a past guest. I just, reading the, the endorsements of this book, it was like a, a marketing book podcast greatest hits list. It was just uh, a lot of familiar faces. And in the book, you talk about Michael Brenner, who's been on the show twice. And Believe it or not, he's the person I first learned about Carla Johnson from over five years ago. I was starting the podcast, and he said, oh, 
Carla Johnson's working on a book. You, you, I, I want you to know about that. And uh, that was uh, Experiences, the Seventh Era of Marketing, which you wrote with Robert Rose. And uh, he pushed you aside and did the interview himself. But you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna go into that. I mean, I think the Dallas Cowboys were having a, a bad season at that point, so he was getting kind of aggressive. But after that interview, I was so excited to be able to get you to come to my home in Norfolk, Virginia Beach, to speak at the American Marketing Association. And they say that. You don't regret the things you do in life. You regret the things you don't do. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there to see you uh, speak, but I've since been able to um, meet you at, at some conferences, as I also uh, mentioned earlier. And also, I first learned about this book over a year ago when I interviewed you in 2020 for the Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktail series. I will say, any shred of success that I have Doug comes from riding on the coattails of your show. <laughs> oh, stop it. I stalk your guests relentlessly, oh. asking them to endorse my work. I listen to your podcasts. I show up at events. And what that wasn't that quirky that of all the months that you weren't there for the AMA events, that it happened to be the one that that I was speaking at. I know. I do remember. It was a phenomenal group of people. I had so much fun. Oh, I heard great things about the talk. I just, there was something I just couldn't get out of that day. And Jail, probably. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was a hearing. It was a, <laughs> a restraining order. There were some other authors that put out restraining orders on me and they said, look, you got to get this guy away from us. He's really bothering us. But I, I've, I've listened to your other podcasts. You accepted their mailing labels and didn't put them on the show. What's that? The reciprocity rule. They mailed you free gifts to get on the show. Oh, and that's right. Did, I listened to your past episodes. Yes, yes, yes. I'm drunk with power because I got a, <laughs> a gift card to a steakhouse and I didn't want to redeem it because then I felt would feel obligated to that <laughs> author. It's still sitting in the book on the shelf. But at any rate, when I was interviewing you about that for Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails, you were drinking a uh, sangria drink. And what I should let the listener know is before we started recording a few minutes ago, you said that you've been drinking that same drink all morning, getting ready for this interview. Absolutely. It's, I, and I brushed my teeth. <laughs> oh, thank so, you. I go to all extents to be totally prepared to be a guest on your podcast, Doug. This is important to the listeners. They appreciate Sang that. Sangria and fresh breath. Yes. So to the listeners in Spain, you know, we would say salud. But speaking of sangria in Spain, tell listeners about your, uh, your adventure in Spain. You know, I think some of my life's greatest adventures started, started with a little bit of drink here and there. I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad one. But I do remember um, uh, it was about a little over 20 years ago, and my this was pre-kids. My husband and I were sitting on our back deck late at night in Omaha, Nebraska, five blocks from where Warren Buffett lives. He was our neighbor. Uh -huh. And uh, we said... You know, there's there's got to be a little bit more to life than just going to a cube every day and doing these things that we do. And somehow we challenge each other. I, I bet you wouldn't quit your job to go to South America for a year. I, I, I would. I bet you wouldn't. Anyway, got up, went and booked two one-way tickets to Lima, Peru, 
And the next thing you know, we quit our jobs and we were packing up and heading to South America for a year. And I, I say that because it was on that trip that we said, if we, if we ever had kids, we wanted to live abroad for a year with those kids. Okay, fast forward to 2018 and we're looking at our brood of three. Suddenly that happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we won't get into those details. <laughs> Where do these but kids come from? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I've had a little bit too much sangria. Yeah. We were, uh, they were a sophomore in high school, eighth grade and sixth grade. And we realized that if we didn't go to Spain for their junior, freshman and seventh grade year, then this dream that we had had and promise we made to each other all these years ago would never happen. Because you know, you know what happens to kids once they fly the nest either either they come home to live with you forever or else you don't you don't see um see them again so we said all right we just said this is the year we're going to do it and we moved to spain who knew who could ever know what the timing was on that we we left um august 1st 2018 and came back august 1st 2019 so our oldest could finish her senior year in person with her friends and then COVID happened. But it was a spectacular year, I will say that. Spectacular year abroad in Spain. I enjoyed following it on uh, social media and then learning about it in your uh, interview on Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. And I'll include a link to that in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. It was a, it was a, a, a lot of fun. And you'll never regret it, I can imagine. Uh, you did just the right thing. You're, you know, just when I thought I was going to be parent of the year, you and your <laughs> husband – you know, you snatched uh, you snatched it away from me, but that's okay. That's okay. One of these days, I'm going to get one of those mugs that says "World's Greatest Dad." I would think my kids would pick up on a hint, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> well, do they listen to your podcast? No, no, they don't, and they don't really think I'm very funny. And you know, children need time to develop a sophisticated sense of humor. That's it's right. Like a, it's like a palate for wine. Yes, yes. Although I must say, and I'm digressing like mad here, but hey, you know, Sangria, Carly Johnson. When my kids, uh, they're both in their 20s now, but they both had the same kindergarten teacher. And at the end of our, our daughter's the younger one, three years younger, uh, at the end of her kindergarten year, we were chatting with Mrs. Merritt, their teacher. And uh, she said, you know, your kids got every joke I ever told. <laughs> and I you know, was thinking like, yes, my work is done here. And my wife, my long-suffering wife was like, oh, why did you have to say that? No, no, <laughs> don't encourage him. But at any rate, they, yeah. And you know what? Both kids are gone. They already left. And my son lives in the, this area and he went to get a apartment at the Virginia Beach Oceanfront with some friends. And I was like, no, Harry, come on, come on, stay here. It's been great having you live here after school. And, you know, first child, a little more serious. He said, Dad, I <clears throat> I, I appreciate that, but it, I, I kind of need to move on. <laughs> oh, ow. <laughs> so it's okay. You know, I face rejection all the time. And we're both the youngest children. So, you know, we, 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 we can we can take some hits. So. That's right. We we have our whole life, and, and and there is there is research that says a great sense of humor, especially dry humor, which I think your kids probably have, knowing you, is a sign of high intelligence. So, you know, just throw just sprinkle that into conversation over over coffee or cocktails with your wife, and see what happens. Yes. Well, I think uh, most anyone that knows us will say that 
you know, uh, fortunately, children inherit their intelligence from their mothers, and that was definitely, uh, definitely the case here. So, well, let's get on to your book, The Forward by Brian Solis, uh, who I interviewed about X, the experience when business meets design, is truly one of the best forwards I've ever read. But I'm not surprised it came from Brian Solis. He's one of those guys where you could just tell Amazon, look, whatever he publishes, just send it to me. Just ship it. Yeah, I just totally it, agree. it's going to totally be. Agree. It's so uh, thought provoking, and I, I congratulate you on on having that. And also, I wanted to mention that your book, and for reasons we're going to explain, it brought to mind three other books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. That again, I'll link to these interviews for folks that want to find them. Two of them are about creativity. Uh, one is The Creative Curve by Alan Gannett, and the other one is The Creator Mindset by Nir Bashan. And uh, both dispelled the myth of catching lightning in a bottle and explained that creativity is a practiced skill, much more of a system. And just like some of the things in your book about innovation, and we're going to talk about why some of the myths of innovation and why everyone is actually very, very capable of being not only innovative, but also uh, creative. And there's been... Uh, out of over 350 books, there's been a really only one about primarily about innovation that's been on the show, and that's the Innovation Mandate by Nicholas Webb. Um, and uh, now that you've finished your book, you might want to write that. Happy to introduce you. <laughs> he, he writes great books. But let's get into uh, this issue of, of innovation. I do want to quote, and you didn't quote him in the book, but I wanted to mention this, Peter Drucker, very famous quote about uh, innovation. He said, and I'm quoting because the purpose of business is to create a customer, the business enterprise has two and only two basic functions, marketing and innovation. Marketing and innovation produce results. All the rest are costs. And I want to read from a couple of uh, sections of your book that elaborate further on that and the importance of innovation. And I'm going to read just a little bit more than I normally do. Because I love the way you write. <laughs> oh, thank you. But thank it's you. also it's also the marketing book podcast, so I'm allowed to quote <laughs> from the book. book. Yeah, read a marketing book. <laughs> Although it's really uh, you have some examples from marketing, but this it's not it's it's a broader topic. It's about innovation. You have a couple of examples of 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 as it related to marketing, but also to other things as well. So, plus it's my podcast, so it's my rules. There you go. I like that. Sorry to have to drop the hammer, but. <laughs> I want to read, you know what? I want to start at the very end of the book, page um, 175 for those playing the, the home game. I want to quote from a couple sections there, and then I want to go to two other places at the beginning. You write, we're in a time in business in which the work you do must create impact. On an individual level, your innovative ideas may be the deciding factor between keeping your job or getting laid off. From a team perspective, it could mean the difference between cutting budgets and getting spread thin and getting more funding to invest in your project and the skills of your people. At a company level, it can be the differentiator between surviving during a time of crisis and being able to assure employees, customers, and shareholders that your strategy holds strong and you'll remain in growth mode regardless of what the universe throws at you. There's always a reason not to innovate. When times are good, no one wants to risk rocking the boat by trying something new. When times are bad, companies focus on cutting every expense possible and telling employees to keep their nose to the grindstone. Productivity and output matter most. The year 2020 found people around the world in the startling grip 
of an unprecedented health crisis. COVID-19 was first and foremost a human tragedy that affected millions. Whether that was as a patient, a family member, a healthcare professional, or someone whose livelihood depended on either earning a wage or a wage earner, our need to socially distance moved us from corner offices and cubicles to kitchen tables as we learned to work from home. And then moving on, no person or business of any size or any industry will come away unaffected. The companies that will rebound the fastest and the highest are the ones that have innovation at the heart of their culture. When every employee in an organization raises their hand with new ideas of how to do anything better, it sparks interest, attention, engagement, ideas, and outcome. And then moving on, at its heart, innovation is about solving problems. And finally, for this section, every person, team, and organization has problems that need solving, even more so in the midst of chaos. While you may think that getting innovation going is easier when times are flush, the opposite may actually be true. During disruption, people expect change to happen. They look at the entire system differently, which unfreezes the organization. People know the processes that have always worked are now up in the air, and it makes room for fresh thinking. In turn, this creates a bias toward action, and people come up with more ideas faster, they make decisions quicker, and they get them into play sooner. This leads to extraordinary outcomes, outcomes that save time or money, make money or create value beyond anything they could have imagined. And then I want to go to a section in the introduction, which is page uh, 25, which for you listeners in Rome, it's XXV. Okay. <laughs> so you wrote, it's taken nearly five years for me to write this book. The one question I sought to answer was this. Is coming up with a great idea that has a big impact a process people can learn? I conducted interviews and research into hundreds of innovators in all walks of life. I started out asking about how they come up with their big ideas. Most couldn't tell me. So instead, I asked questions that walked them backwards through time to understand the path of their idea, starting with its inspiration. Once we had reverse engineered it, the person then recognized that they followed the same process over and over. It was an eye-opening revelation to them and further confirmation for me of a tried and true process. Not only was the framework much simpler than they realized, it also helped tell a story of a new idea in a way that made it feel more familiar and less risky. Then I took the process and put it to the test in the real world. I actively sought out left-brain analytical thinkers, looking at you engineers, and conceptual right-brain visionaries. I worked it through with C-suite executives, traditional innovation groups, frontline employees, volunteers, and everyday people who would never label themselves as innovators. Around the world, I shared and taught it in speeches, workshops, consulting, and one-on-one -on -one coaching. It worked every time. I wrote this book for three reasons. One, to be a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Okay, I'm joking about that. She didn't really write that in the book. One, to teach people a simple, scalable process that anyone at any level with any experience can learn and use to consistently come up with great ideas. In fact, it's my goal to personally teach one million people how to become innovators by 2025. And two, is to make it clear that there's no single type of person who makes the best innovator. Everyone has their natural genius, but if we're going to succeed as teams, much less entire organizations, we have to empower people to use their own way of innovating and appreciate what each style contributes. You'll begin to recognize and even create opportunities that your competitors miss once you harness the collective powers of your larger organization. It builds a culture of respect and trust and ultimately extraordinary outcomes. 
To debunk the myth, this is number three, to debunk the myth that innovation has to be complex, time-consuming, and expensive. There's plenty of disruption that follows new ideas, but not all innovation requires that level of upside-down thinking. For many of the companies I studied, it was the cumulative effect of giving unconventional thinkers opportunities to contribute that made the difference. And finally, on page 18, you write, I hear too many people say they don't have good ideas or they don't know how to come up with them. It's important that everyone in your organization, no matter how big or small, how old or new, what kind of industry you're in, learns to connect the dots between life around them and the work they do. This book is for engineers and artists, marketers and accountants, PTA presidents and nonprofit volunteers. Learning a process to come up with, vet, and share ideas can be used to solve all kinds of problems, whether you're at work or home. You'll find the idea generation process you learn in this book helpful to not only climb the corporate ladder, but also make life more exciting, connected, and fun. There are infinite possibilities that come with new ideas. This book is for those of you who believe that our best, most creative, and most innovative days of business are ahead. That innovative thinking is a skill that's both taught and learned, and that this is the key to the future of a business's ability to create opportunities and thrive. Now, let's get to business. So thank you for letting me read uh, from some of my favorite sections in the book, Carla. And the last, and, and I'm I'm going to come back in 45 minutes and see how you're doing because I've already talked enough here. Uh, just, <laughs> just just go crazy. I'm you know, just over here sipping my sangria. Yeah, woohoo! So what I wanted to do though is set the stage. I, I can remember at one point in my you know ad career, I worked for an agency and we had the, the owner of the agency, and we had some healthcare clients and. I can I can remember sitting in on these pitches to this health like a new healthcare system and he would get up for his closing act or whatever you know some of us would present and you'd have a room full of like nurses and hospital administrators and physicians and so forth he did this every time and it became a joke to us we were always uh, you know joking amongst ourselves and he would lead up and he'd say now how talk about the creative advertising approach we we're going to take and we're going to focus on two things and he would hold up one finger and he'd say, quality. And then he would hold up the second finger and say, innovation. <laughs> and every head in that conference room would be going, yes, we're innovative. Yes, we, <laughs> we have high quality. And it became, you know, it's, it's easy to get a little bit cynical about some of these things. And also, there's one part in the book where you talk about some of the worst brainstorm, some of the worst things you can do in a brainstorming session, right? And when I worked in New York, I can remember they did have uh, brainstorming sessions, and they were led actually by the people in the research department, and they were usually very well done, and I loved them, uh, unlike a lot of people that you interviewed for the book, because there was always like free pizza involved. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I have my price. I'm, I'm cheap, but not easy. So <laughs> what I wanted to do was play a segment from the American television show, The Office, which you mention in your book as it related to the brainstorming, and tell the listener that if you adopt even some of the things in this book and, and maybe help to lead your organization, you will never be in a situation like this. Hey everybody, everybody, listen up. I need your ideas now. Ideas, please, right now. Go, go. Come on. Michael, we don't know what you're talking about. Wet cement, outside, it's drying, fast, come on. This is a lifelong dream. What do I write? What oh, do I write? Michael, you could put your initials in it. MGS, no. Some idiot named Mark Greg Sputnik will claim credit for it. I don't, once in a lifetime opportunity, people. 
Come on, here we well, go. What? Here we go. Well, let's. Yes. When I was a little girl. Okay. Okay, do it. Come on, we, great. Let's we, hear it. We found some wet cement it's in the drying, park at our drying. neighborhood. And All right. Come on, I Phil. Be right. Oh, come on. Here it is. You draw a picture. No. Because that says, that says no. so much more than words. No. Come on, give me Wait. something good. Okay, I was watching E and I saw Will Smith outside the Chinese theater. And oh my God, he looks so good. Hey, I'm translate. She's talking about the handprints that celebrities make in the cement. I love it. If you were a real star, you'd put your face in it. I love it more! Michael, that doesn't seem safe. I love it! <laughs> Come on, let's Come go! On. Okay, that is exactly not <laughs> what is in this book. So, you had to talk about The Office. I'm sorry, you know, you just, you just had to put that in there, Carla. I hope you realize what a mistake you were making. No, I'm kidding. It was perfect. It was perfect. But let's let's get into the book, okay? Uh, just a few things from the book. And I want to ask a question, which is also the title of Chapter 1. Carla Johnson, what is innovation? Oh, uh, dun-dun-dun. That's, that's like the $10 million question. Right? Yeah, and I'll be back in a little while. I'm going to go mix a drink. <laughs> you, need, you ask 10 different people to define innovation, and you get 20 or 30 or... 37.9 different answers. And one of the reasons people don't innovate or are so bad at it is because they don't understand what it is, or they don't have a common definition of what it is. So I learned this from Ardeth Albee a long time ago, to set the stage by define what it is that you're going to talk about. So I'm going to give her a little hat tip, because I think just starting out by asking people, what is it? And then it forced me to understand my own definition of, of innovation, because for me, it's not about huge disruptive ideas that are complex, complicated, completely overturn industries. Lightning like in a bottle, right? Exactly, exactly. It's really, if, if you think about the, the opposite of, of death by a thousand paper cuts, it's, it's life and extraordinary outcomes by uh, um, a thousand little ideas every single day. And people, people don't understand or I'm asking them to rethink their definition of innovation. So they look at it in this way. And it's a, it's a short, concise definition, but each word is carefully selected and has its own nuance and impact. I define innovation as the ability to consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas. Now, when we look at a new idea, Michael Scott, he's got a lot of new ideas. I'm not going to deny it. And you know that all sorts of people have a lot of new ideas. But just because something's new doesn't mean it's innovative. I mean, we look at some of the, the things like um, Cheetos made Cheeto flavored lip balm. New idea? You bet. Great idea? Reliable idea? Right. Sellable idea? Not consistent? Not so much. Uh, Harley Davidson tried its hand at cologne. <laughs> yep. Bic made disposable underwear. Now, uh -huh. you know, maybe there's a time and a place for that. You know, Lollapalooza, something like that. I don't know. But just having an idea that's great isn't enough. And Colgate made beef lasagna? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they did. Which every time I think of that, I think of mint flavored lasagna. Now, an, a new idea is something that it doesn't have to necessarily never have been done before, but maybe it's something that's never been done in your industry before. For example, McDonald's designed their drive-through for their restaurants after their inspiration from a Formula One pit stop. Mm -hmm. Was it completely new and never been done before? No. Was it new in the fast food industry? Absolutely. 
So it's, it's things like that. BMW designed their iDrive system based off the inspiration of a video game control. So that's an example of, of a new idea. Mm-hmm. The next one, and I'll admit this, a great idea is something that's much more subjective. You know, you can't, you know, those, those researchers probably would have a hard time with a matrix qualifying a, a great idea, but it's the kind that makes you jealous. You didn't think of it yourself. I mean, that's, that's what David Ogilvie talks about when he talks about a, a great idea, but it's something that gives you an emotional, a, a visceral response. And it's something that people actually want. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but even, even, even just a great idea isn't, isn't enough. And we've seen companies and they're kind of those one hit wonder type of companies that have these amazing, um, ideas, things go through the roof and then like a Blackberry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or maybe a Palm Pilot, yes. something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then, and, and even if you have an idea that's new and great, it's not enough if it's not reliable and a reliable idea is one that makes you money. It could be, you know, a financial bottom line impact. It could save money. You've made a process more efficient. It could make people more effective. It's um, an ability to take advantage of an opportunity that maybe you would have missed. And then when we look at all three of these together, innovation is truly the ability to consistently come up with these ideas that are new, great, and reliable. So a new idea, it surprises and delights people because it's unexpected. A great idea inspires and excites you, and a reliable idea is making money. So that as we look at how do we become innovators, our task is to be able to consistently come up with these new, great, and reliable ideas. Mm. Great explanation. Let me just ask one thing. From page four, could you explain when people think of creativity and innovation, which we've been talking about, they think of creativity as optional and innovation as a business necessity. It is. And and I learned this growing up in business. And I also learned this doing the research for this book. Uh, the idea of creativity feels like a nice to have. Uh-huh. It's, it's making the office more pleasant, more colorful, more whatever. And there's certain people who are the, the creative types. You know, they're the creative directors. They're right. the people, they're, they're not the people who wear suits. They're the people, you know, I'm from Colorado. They're the people who wear the hemp clothing and Birkenstocks kind of thing. Oh, you know? yeah. But, but then you look at the innovators and you think of them as the serious people who understand business. So it's, it's nice to have the creatives in the room. It's necessary to have the innovators. And I, I don't like that distinction of saying one is more important than the other because I don't believe you can have innovation without creativity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and it, it, uh, my heart aches <laughs> that those perceptions <laughs> are, are like that. It's just, it's, I think it just shows a fundamental lack of understanding. But I'm now going to ask another big question, which is the title of chapter two. Carla Johnson, why don't we innovate? Ah, you know what? And it's so it's so interesting. If you ask somebody like this, they would tell you the essence of why we don't, but they would give you a lot of um, different ways of saying. But essentially, it, it boils down to three different reasons. One is that we make it way more complicated than it has to be. Right. Can, can I just say the word McKenzie? Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, if you if you if you don't have a wall full of flowcharts and uh, matrices and dependencies and and all of these things, then we don't think that it's true innovation. And it's there's actually a, a psychological thing called the complexity bias. Mm. 
And it's where if something isn't really complex, we don't think it's good enough. We don't think it's smart enough. And so that's one of the beauties of true innovation and having a definition that is so simple is that it takes away all that complexity because with complexity comes elitism. It starts to scrape, you know, scrape away the people who should be contributing these innovative ideas. But that's the first one is that we make it entirely overcomplicated and it's not necessary. And the second reason is that we see innovation as something that other people do. Mm-hmm. And I know I've, I've worked in companies where they have a specific innovation department. You know, it's labeled as that. There's a head of innovation. There's Yes. There's a, Look on LinkedIn. You'll see people with that word in their title. Totally. And you'll see there's design thinkers, there's ethnographers, there's data analysts, there's all of these titles that people associate with innovation. And we think it's either somebody else in our company does or some other kind of company. You know, it is a Netflix, it's a Google, it's an Amazon, but it's not my B2B industrial manufacturing company because that's not what we do. You know, we shouldn't be innovative because that's a little bit too disruptive. And so when we when we point to other people and say, they're the innovative ones, not B, what happens within a company is that they essentially remove all accountability, responsibility, participation in their ability to consistently come up with new, great, and reliable ideas in a less complicated environment. Yes. And it does some interesting things to the culture. It, it, it actually creates an environment of learned helplessness. Because I'm not a design thinker, you know, a, a, uh, an actual innovator with a title, or I don't work at these other companies, then I can't do this. It's, it's learned helplessness. Right. It's like, it's not my job and or... Uh, I'm not worthy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then the third one is, we don't know how. And part of the reason, you know, even if people are ready and saying, you know, I want to be an innovator, I understand I don't need all these other things. I don't want to make it overcomplicated, but now what do I do? And that's one of the reasons that I developed the perpetual innovation process, because I want to show people, if I say it doesn't have to be overcomplicated, if it's something that everybody can do, then here is literally a five-step process that teaches everybody how to be innovative. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you talk about overcomplicating, and it brought to mind a, a story of a client uh, of mine. They are... Uh, they build interstate highways and uh, roads and parking lots, you know, asphalt paving company and so forth. And they, uh, after a hundred years of ownership, they the employees bought it. Real successful group. And so the CEO, uh, who I know, was uh, giving these updates because they were kind of having to manage differently. And it's uh, they, they were talking to all the employees about what's going on with the business. There's sort of an update. And they had this one plant which was sort of on the outer reaches of where they could serve in the way the state of Virginia was buying this road construction stuff. It kind of, it threw a wrench in what they were doing. And he was explaining, you know, some of the challenges the companies have and what they're doing. And it was seemed like a kind of a complicated problem. And one day an employee who was a relatively new employee, and they actually call them shovel operators. <laughs> I mean, a, a new guy that, Operator, but the actual, operate, operating a shovel. Yeah. Well, they have to have a whole machine. When you, Put down these this asphalt. You actually have to have a number of people there to quickly uh, yeah, address it. Yeah, move it so it doesn't yeah. cool. Yeah. And he said, "Well, sir, why don't we just sell that plant?" <laughs> and nobody had thought of that. 
and the clouds parted and yes. the angels sang. <laughs> he told me about it because he was like, you know, gosh, so great to talk to the employees because this guy came up with that and I had completely missed it. And all my, you know, financial wizards and lawyers, he goes, no, why don't you just sell that one plant to, <laughs> to our competition in that city? And it was like, oh. Yes, sell the problem to your competitors. Uh, Yeah. Well, no, but it was just sort of, it was a a new problem they had and they were overthinking it. And it was a simple idea that uh, some fresh thinking brought in. And uh, the other thing about it's only something others know how to do. I just wanted to quote from this one uh, section. You were working with a client, a business-to-business software-as-a-service client, I believe. Mm -hmm. And you were working with your, I guess, your marketing counterpart. And you asked him what, kind of inspired him. And he talked about, you know, Disney being a, you know, a great learning organization. Uh, They were, I guess they were building a learning management platform. Mm -hmm. And in other words, the way that uh, Disney, so it's a different line of work, but the way Disney would approach problems and solutions for their customers was what really fascinated and inspired him. So you all went and said, look, that's going to be kind of our North Star as we, as we proceed here. And I had to write yikes off to the side of this because I think I've been in these kind of meetings where you were presenting to the chief financial officer and he put his pencil down, his pencil, I guess that meant he was old school. He pushed himself back from the table, crossed his fleshy arms across his broad chest, pursed his lips and said, we're not doing this. We're nothing like Disney. We don't have dogs. We don't have princesses and we don't have theme parks. We are a serious company with PhDs. We have engineers. We're smart professionals who take the work we do seriously. What you've proposed is ridiculous. If we're going to show people how innovative we are, I need you to go back to your desk and come up with some ads that tell people we're innovative. I need you to update the website, and I need you to start doing cold calls. This is how we get people to know that we're innovative, by telling them we are. (laughs) Carl, I do hope you turned to your client and said, "Um, you might want to update your resume. It was just it was just one of the most heartbreaking, soul-sucking situations. Because clearly this person was so stuck on this is how it's this is the process that has to be done rather than how do we get to this outcome? And how can we learn from a company that is iconic and phenomenally successful at what they do and take what they know and apply it in our world. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean you're going to start having Pluto show up on your software platform, you know, when people <laughs> open it up or that the salespeople have to dress like princesses. You know, the whole gist of what was so successful about Disney was completely lost on this guy. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. So, before we get into the the details of the PIP, the perpetual innovation process, one quick question before we move on, what is brand attachment disorder? Oh, I love this because we all suffer from brand detachment disorder. And you can, it's a psychological phenomenon. Go to the internet, search for it. You'll find it. It started because I was in a conference pre-COVID many years ago in Las Vegas. And one of the speakers from Zappos was on stage talking about their approach to customer experience. Now you think about a company that couldn't be more successful or better known for their customer experience process, right? Zappos. And at the time I was working for a company that mined boron. 
And I say like, that's actually an element on the periodical table. I've had yeah. people say, did you just make that up? Like, does that stand for a boring moron? Like, is that you know, really a thing? <laughs> Carla, I'm so glad that finally, the <laughs> fact that I was required to take college chemistry as an English major. <laughs> I just come into play. I, just, I finally got some value out of that. <laughs> you probably even know what number on the periodic table it is. Yeah. Oh, let's not push things. Yeah. <laughs> So boron is an element that's used to make things like um, high quality glass in TV monitors or or computer screens, um, surfboards, things like that. And so that that was my client. It couldn't be further from selling shoes. And while I'm sitting there listening to this guy and just thinking, get me out of here, I'm looking around <laughs> for people I could, you know, connect up with during happy hour, or, you know, check my social feeds and catch up on the on the real world. Uh, real work world. And then a couple of days later, I was thinking about what I had done and, and my mind thinking process. And that's when I started to look into it and do what we do. We go to the internet, we search the symptoms, and it's called brand detachment disorder. And it's this tendency that we have to dismiss the relevancy and and application of great ideas because we think that what we sell is different or unique. Like and the that is, like the CFO with the fleshy arms. Exactly, exactly. And so there are so many companies, brands, nonprofits, experiences, ideas, art exhibits that we can learn so much from and be inspired by that can help us be so innovative. But we say, you know, that doesn't relate to me because what I do is completely different. That's the whole, that's the, that is how you connect the dots and yes. start to rethink innovation. Yeah. That's exactly. why I wanted to ask about that because it was such a great uh, reminder of uh, some of the, the backbone of your system. So um, let me just uh, tell folks what the five steps are and then we'll uh, get into some specifics uh, about them. And then the second half of the whole book is about getting your organization to go in this direction. But I thought it'd be more helpful for us to talk about the those, those five steps as, as building blocks. So the first one is to observe, distill, relate, generate, and pitch. And we're going to go into each one of those. But before we do, you talk in the book about the difference between goals and objectives as it, as it relates to innovation. And that's real important. Could you explain why uh, you make that distinction? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about what a goal is, we confuse it with an objective because we think that the outcome is the same as what we're trying to accomplish. And when we look at the difference, if you look at the definition of a goal, is that goals are, they're very broad in scope and they create this big picture of where you hope to land down the line. So my goal is to be a guest on Doug Burdett's <laughs> podcast. And she's still here. Okay. And I'm still here this year. So that means I, I defined the destination that what I, where I wanted to write. I wanted to be the quality of writer and write a quality book that would be accepted without me giving you a gift certificate to a steak shop. <laughs> right. Actually, that's the podcast. worst thing you could do. Yeah. <laughs> So I won't say where I gave you the gift card to, but so, so goals create this focus. And then, and then what you do is you break that down into your objectives because your objectives are the specific steps that you take to help you accomplish that goal. Okay. So for an objective one, I need to 
research, discover, what's an idea that the world needs that I care about passionately that I would want to write a book on? My next objective is, you know, how do I put a team around me to help be successful in creating the content? You know, then there's these series of, of objectives that actually create the results that ideally, hopefully get me to that goal of being on your on your podcast. So, so far I'm feeling pretty good about myself, but the, the thing is, as that you the, should, and that's not the sangria <laughs> talking either folks. So, so we have this big goal, but it takes a series of objectives to, in order to get to that goal. And with each objective, you look at what your objective was, and then you look at what kind of results are you getting? And then you continually shift what you're doing so that you can keep pointing toward that goal. And I think that's what a lot of people confuse is the difference between a goal and objective when it comes to innovation. Being innovative is something that you have to accomplish by setting these different objectives that deliver the behavior or the outcomes that turn you into a person or a company that's innovative. Yes. And if you want to stay out of a situation like we played from the office, where it was just completely unfocused, and trust me, I have been in these kind of <laughs> meetings. I remember I had a, a client once where uh, it was a bunch of stakeholders were there too. And he kind of went off the, you know, <laughs> off the agenda and says, okay, we need some ideas. We need some ideas. The <laughs> and I, you know, marketing ideas. And like, we're, we already had a plan. And uh, anyway, but he, I guess he, maybe he wanted them to feel like they were contributing. Yeah, it's so weird sometimes. Oh, and I remember this one person said, we should be doing those annoying pop-up ads. We should be doing those. (laughs) It was just completely out of context, and it was sort of like the the Michael Scott thing. The thing that I loved uh, was uh, your formula for setting objectives on page 31, where you say, we need new ideas too, where, let me just read it, you need to clarify you need to clearly identify what you intend to work on so your attention isn't scattered all over the place. Pick something that is big enough to make a difference but small enough to manage. Number two is so we can. Uh, Regardless of what area of business you work in, you have to understand what specific impact you expect to make and how you'll contribute to business goals, not just marketing goals. And three, with these constraints. Let's face it, everything would be possible if the sky's the limit, but you have to be realistic. What constraints <laughs> do you need to work with? Budget, time, uh, power-hungry Kevin in accounting who vetoes everything. We List- all have that Kevin <laughs> version, <laughs> yes. you know? <laughs> yeah, nothing against people named Kevin, but I know Or accounting. <laughs> yes, or accounting, yes. But, but it was, we need new ideas too, so we can with these constraints. I mean, that was almost... Worth the, worth the price of the book right there just to help set some limits. And I can remember in the ad business, uh, the joke was, you know, you, or you, you had to prepare a creative brief for the creative people in the creative department, like we were talking about. And it was very carefully written, and there was a lot of strategy that went behind it. And the joke was the really good creative people, they would always say, tight briefs liberate. Yes, and this th- that's what came to mind with, we need new ideas too, so we can with these constraints. Um, otherwise, you just get all over the place. So let's go into the different steps. Observe collecting the dots. And I just want to read from uh, page 24 where you have a quick summary of these things, and I want to ask you some questions. In the observe section, innovators start out by observing the world around them. There are so many times when we shut down and focus on what we have in front of us, but it's when we stop. Make time to be mindful and take in what what goes on around us that we start to look at the world from a different perspective. 
a specific question, and please talk more about this step, but what is inattentional blindness and, and what can you do to you know, try and cure it? Inattentional blindness is this thing that we all have as humans where we get so focused on what's right in front of us mm-hmm. that we completely miss everything all around us. And I'll, I'll give you a personal example. I was sitting at a cafe on the sidewalk in Bilbao, Spain, and, I, and it was a, uh, a call for work. And I was so focused on my computer screen and this call that I never even noticed that my husband and my daughter stood right in front of me, waving their arms, trying to get my attention. And finally they couldn't, so they just walked off and they told me about it later. And so, I mean, that's a specific instance, but we walk around like that so much these days because of our phone. We're so focused on either things like that on our phone, our email, our texts or whatever, or we're just... In, a, in another mental place that we're never present with where we are. And that right there takes away this incredible ability to be present and mindful and observant. And that's one of the things it's, and it was interesting as I got into how these steps connect and how the brain connects dots. It's actually a neuroscience thing mm-hmm. that if, unless you let your brain relax and go into the divergent part of its behavior and observing the world around you is one of those things. You'll never reach your full potential as an innovator. Yes. It's funny. You talk about the phone. That was one of the other things I want to ask you about. And it is so true. And actually, again, I host this podcast where I interview authors of books. So I I remember a lot of them. (laughs) there (laughs) There was one called Indistractable by Nir Eyal. And he goes into a great detail about the science of distraction and uh, but but your your a chapter was about learning to observe and the importance of it and you even include that um, tell listeners about the the gorilla yes this is a um, a video that a couple of researchers did and it was the gorilla experiment and they <laughs> They had um, two teams of people. One team had black shirts, one team had white shirts. And they created this video and they, they told people watching the video, count the number of times that people in white shirts pass the ball. And the, so the people are watching the video and they're counting, 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 get done. And then somebody, you know, they say, okay, how many times was it passed? And these numbers come out. And then they ask, okay, who noticed the gorilla in the background? And people say, what? There was a gorilla? <laughs> who knew? So then they have them watch it again. And they're what they're looking for the ball passes, but now they're looking for the gorilla. And they go, oh, I saw it this time. I totally get what you're talking about. But some people what said, no, the, you tri- there was no you gorilla. Yeah. But what, and then, and then like this subsequent experiment was, yes, but this time, did you notice that the curtain in the background changes colors? Ah. And, and so it's when we're so focused looking for something and not able to truly just sit back let our mind relax, take in the world around us, literally using all five senses, that we shut ourselves off from opportunities 
to observe things that can have a big impact on the, you know, inspiring the work that we do or ideas or seeing how the world really does interact with each other. And, and I call all of these little observations that we take in dots. And it's the beginning of how we, you know, if we're going to connect the dots, we have to look at the dots we connect. Yeah, yes. <laughs> look at the dots. So the second one is distill. And you're right, they, uh, the perpetual innovators, they look at their observations and they begin to notice patterns. It's these patterns that they distill into a, a broader theme. Explain what you mean uh, on page 56 when you write that the number of linear problems your brain solves in a day is infinitesimal compared with the volume of nonlinear ones. Yes, absolutely. And so if we think about how your brain behaves every day, you're going through, um, okay, I, I need to get up, I need to uh, make my coffee, make my breakfast, I need to go up and check email, then I need to, uh, you know, finish reading this book, and then I need to write this report. And it's very linear, right? Like everything follows in order of something else. That's more of how your brain consciously behaves. But if you start to look into the non-linearness of your brain, oh, and, and the linear part can be very exhausting. Does that, that you, deals more with your cognitive, of your, um, uh, what are you, your the prefrontal? Yeah, yeah, your conscious mind, right. It, exactly. But when you look at non-linear behavior, this is where we get more into the neuroscience. Again, your brain is constantly looking to make connections mm -hmm. all day long. It's just how it gives context. It's how it files information, memories, all of this stuff away in your brain. And so when you've been out observing things, you know, maybe you write them all down, like I suggest that you do and, and keep a journal of what you've observed, mm -hmm. or maybe you just truly do sit and observe and you're present and you're mindful. By the time you get to distill, your brain will automatically kick into this habit because it's a um, it's a survival mode. Mm -hmm. Back at, you know in in early days on the savanna, a man or woman would walk out on the savanna and they would observe. Okay, is is the wind blowing? What's the grass doing? Where are the birds? You know mm -hmm. all of these little things. And then they would distill that into things such as, okay, these patterns indicate that right now I am safe. Mm -hmm. But if the um, the grass blew and then the little animals ran and they see the birds as a flock fly away, that's by collecting all of those dots and distilling them, the pattern now is danger. Right. So we're wired to do that already. You just yes, need to feed it. You need to allow it to happen. Yeah. And, and when we don't, and we try to force it through linear thinking, it's one, it's incredibly exhausting. And two, we don't do near as good of quality of work, you know, creative thinking, innovative thinking, than if we would just give our brain the space to allow it to like genetically, naturally, let it do what it does. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's an interesting... Uh a subhead you have in the book, uh, in that section, you talk about going from dots to constellations. And the level of detail in the book is is extensive. I mean, right down to what to put on the post-it note on the whiteboard, 
how to organize it to get you get you going. So don't you know let this conversation make you think this isn't going to tell you exactly uh, how to get that going. So let's go to uh, relate, um, which is uh, transplanting inspiration. Uh, let me just read from uh, it says the perpetual innovators then do something that I call a brand transplant. They take the pattern that they've distilled from another idea and transplant that into their own brand. The ability to relate outside ideas into their own world is almost second nature. This step is key in connecting the dots between the world around them and the work that they do. So if you could explain more about what this brand transplant is, that would help. We started to talk about it earlier, but let's 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 talk about this because like the the CFO with the fleshy arms, he didn't seem to be armed with that. He didn't understand it. But like the idea of McDonald's borrowing from Formula One is exactly what it is, right? It is. And, and this is exactly the step that people who struggle with coming up with inspired ideas, innovative ideas that they're missing. Mm. And, our, and our tendency is that even if we have done these observations and we distill them into patterns, we want to jump right into generating ideas. But when ideas come across as a copy and paste or, or um, something that doesn't have that fresh energy, it's because people have not taken the time to do this step. And the relate step is really looking at, okay, I've made these observations. I've distilled them into patterns. Now, what's the essence behind this pattern that really relates into the work that I do? So if we, and I don't know this for sure, I'm just totally making this one up. But if you were McDonald's and you're looking at a Formula One pit stop and you're saying, okay, I'm observing, they have a high, they have uh, cars that come in, that need to spend as little time as possible here. Um, these are people who are in a hurry. There's a service that needs to be performed, you know, all of these observations. And then you start to distill it into a pattern. Maybe the pattern is about um, efficiency. Maybe it's about making people happy, you know, patterns like that. It doesn't have to be, a, you know, any kind of crazy, super intellectual pattern. It's just whatever pattern that you recognize. Now, the relate step is where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. Because instead of having somebody go, you know, activate their brand attachment disorder and saying, oh, that doesn't relate to me because we're a food company. We're not a race car company. You know, and like the fleshy CFO said, <laughs> you know, we're not Disney. We're a serious company. If he would have been able to look at the essence behind these patterns that Disney had, just like McDonald's did with the essence behind the patterns of a Formula One pit stop and relate those into their brand and then start to generate ideas. That's really where inspired ideas come from that turn into those extraordinary outcomes. Because now McDonald's can say, ah, I understand. We have to look at how traffic flows into our drive-through service because that makes the difference in how fast people can be served. And there's plenty of McDonald's drive-thrus now that are two lane versus the previous one lane. You know, you have you have a, an order that's taken here. They take your money at the second window. They deliver your food at the third, and, and things like that. So they've taken this inspiration and they understand what about it actually relates 
to what they're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Let me just quote from uh, page 67. You write, relating is the process of seeing opportunities to tell a bigger story. When you relate bigger ideas and experiences to your work, you're looking at your organization from the outside in. Connecting the dots in this way means your harebrained ideas look less crazy and more credible. <laughs> You've taken inspiration yes. <laughs> from something else that's already working and associated that with your own efforts. But you write, relating is an important step in this process and one that can feel easy to rush through. I'll throw you a huge word of warning here. You must slow down and work through the relate step rather than hopping right to generate and slinging out ideas. If you don't, you'll end up in the copycat trap and miss the entire power of the perpetual innovation process. Without understanding what it is about, an idea or experience that relates to your work, you have a high potential to copy and paste, which is always a disaster. You'll try to push the idea forward, it'll fail miserably, and then you'll believe creativity doesn't work and innovation's a drag. It's too hard. It's for other people. It's something that only works in cool companies. So uh, just one other quick question about that, uh, which I found really interesting, was I think it was based on something Dr. Men Basador Mm-hmm. discovered in his research, and it had to do with, um, explain this concept of how might we, because this is great for innovation. It's also great for leadership. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's such a collaborative approach, but it's so simple. So D- Dr. Man, Min Basador, he had spent decades studying creative thinking, innovation, problem solving kind of thinking, critical thinking in a lot of companies. And he had worked at um, P&G. Um, and if you, if you look at the companies that you see who are, that we look at now as iconic innovative companies, they have taken his thinking and related it you know, to what they do and, and put it into place that way. I think IDEO is the big company mm-hmm. that's seen as using this process, but they actually took it you know, applied what they saw him do into their own work. And the interesting thing about this relate step in using this magic phrase that Dr. Min came up with is I'll, I'll explain it and you'll feel this viscerally, the difference in the three phrases Mm -hmm. of questions. And like you said, it's for innovators and also for leaders because what we tend to do <laughs> or is, even parents <laughs> or even parents I have used it as a parent I'll admit that um, is that when when we think about when we need an idea we say you know how should we do this what ideas do you have and the word should is probably one of the most indirectly loaded with judgment words that we have in any language should implies there's a right or wrong and you better make sure that you do you know you get the right one so how should we do this a lot of times what happens in people's brains, whether they realize it or not, is they're saying, uh, I don't know. I don't even know if we should do this. <laughs> you know, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't because I'm afraid of what's going to happen if we do. Uh-huh. So right there, you, you've locked down people's ability to think creatively and innovatively. The other statement that people generally Like use there's a have, right way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's filled with judgment. And, and the other one is, how can we do this? Uh-huh. You know, and people will go to that one if they realize should isn't a, um, an appropriate word. You know, how can we do this? Trying to be collaborative and, you know, let's think about this. How can we make this happen? And again, what happens in people's brain is they go, uh, 
I don't know if we can. Man, this is hard. I don't have any idea. Again, it locks down people's ability to think freely and and to connect those dots. So what Dr. Min found is instead of using either one of those statements, he used the statement, how might we? How might we start to look at this? How might we find, you know, how might we solve this problem? And this little nuance between how should we, how can we, and how might we is that the phrase, how might we, almost puts it in pretend land. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, and, and I've used a similar phrase, like, let's let's pretend we could figure out a way. Like, what do you think that would look like? And all of a sudden, especially as adults, you've moved into this land of play. Mm-hmm. And when your brain has room to play, oh my goodness, step out of the way. And I see this when I do workshops and training with teams, and we get to the step, And we talk about how might we, and especially the people who are like, I hate this, this sucks, this is stupid, I just want to go back, I'm so behind on my email. And then they start to use, like, if it's only people on their team using the how might we, it starts to relax the brain. And then I see them uncross their arms, they start to lean forward, and all of a sudden, these people are coming up with all sorts of ideas, right and left. And that's an important part, is that we have to understand the questions we ask are just as important as the answers that we're looking for. Yes, it's it's one of the most powerful ideas. I, I I'd never knew about this. How should we? How can we? How might we? Mm-hmm. Just remember, how might we? If you only remember three words from this interview, folks. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. There's other things we want to remember. <laughs> but let's go to the next one. Generate. Okay, you talk about uh, becoming an idea factory and. That's where that section, let me just read from page 24. Ideas generated from inspiration are powerful. People come to the table with lackluster or unrealistic ideas because they don't have a process that allows them to draw on a portfolio of experiences that have meaning to them, or they don't know how to bring those ideas back to their own brand. Could you talk about what the best practices are for for generating ideas, particularly the importance of the quantity of ideas. Oh, yeah. And this was an amazing learning I had when I was researching this book. So one of the thing with ideas and generation that happens is, again, we go into an idea generation situation, a brainstorm meeting or, you know, whatever the, whatever label is for, for um, coming up with ideas. Maybe it's a strategy session, uh, you know, client ideation, whatever it might be. But, but what, let me just interrupt. Isn't this more often where companies start, just like Michael yeah, absolutely. Scott. <laughs> absolutely. That's a perfect example. Yeah. So he, you know, we get into a room, we say, we need, I- we need ideas so that we can, you know, capture this client so we can get this business. So yeah. we have our 2022 plan locked down and it's yeah. boom, like, where's the ideas? Come on, come on, come on. Just like you heard Michael going, no, that's horrible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everybody hates it. Everybody hates it. And, and it generally defaults to whoever's the highest ranking person in the room, their idea is right. Or whoever's yes. the loudest. Mm-hmm. I mean, poor introverts. My husband's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. You know, it took me a long time to figure out why he didn't share his ideas with me. He couldn't get a word in edgewise. But, you know, it's also looking at people come to the idea generation process from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. You need to give people time to think up front, especially introverts, because they need time to process it. It's not just about what can you come up with right now? You know, we're we're under pressure. And it's looking at like the long, slow boil. 
the marination of ideas. And that's why these first three steps, when you skip them and you only start with the generate step, your ideas are never fresh. They're never inspired. They never have energy or passion because it's truly just, uh, what can I think of right now? Right. And it, there's not much focus back to the. There is. Yeah. yeah and there's no objective. I mean, and maybe no constraints. Yeah, no objective, no constraints, any of this, any of these things. And so when you start to generate ideas, you bring back your objective. And you're looking at, we need new ideas so that we can. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? Because sooner or later, you have to start to bring these ideas into something that's manageable. But I always say, don't put your constraints in there yet. Because that's a second layer of how you start to filter out the ideas that you right, generate. Right. But but there was a report that I came across that talked about you need to go through 200 ideas before you really start to get to the inspired ideas. Yes. Because e even if we think, oh, I don't have any ideas, as you start to work through them and, you know, if, if you get together with some other people, you, you bounce ideas off each other, what they say sparks something else in your memory. And you think, oh man, we've, we've got 20 ideas. This is amazing. No, you have barely scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. You've barely scratched the surface. And it's really, you have to go through all of these other ideas before your brain really digs deep into all of those dots you've collected, how they've made these constellations, how it relates into what you're doing and really get into something different and unique. Mm -hmm. Talk about the pottery class, back to the quantity thing. Yeah. So one of the things that we think about when we generate ideas is that we say, ah, that's the idea. And we stop at idea number you know, 17 because that was the great idea. And we think that just a good idea is enough. And this, this pottery class was there was a teacher who divided the class in half. And with one, one side of the class, they, she said, we are going to have a competition between the two teams at the end of the semester. And the, the, the piece of pottery that's the best pottery will win. Your job as a team, like the way you're, you're directed to approach this project, is that you make the one most perfect pot that you can possibly think of. Research the pot, you know, do everything that you need to do to craft this one pot. So that's what they went off to do. The other group, she said, we're having this competition between the two teams at the end of the semester. The pot that's the most amazing is the one that will win the contest. Your role, your job as a team is to go through as many potentials in pot design type, style, size, materials, whatever, so that you can come up with the most perfect pot. Well, it was the team that had gone through all of these iterations and types and styles and things that they tried to come up with a pot that had the most unique and innovative pot. And they said it was all that we learned by going through these different ideas along the way and iterating them and getting inspiration from one that led to another is what led us to, to create this absolutely phenomenal, not just highly innovative, but high quality final piece of work. Mm. So, uh, you know, in a weird way, it brought to mind the um, the Malcolm Gladwell outliers, the 10,000 hours <laughs> story yeah. of like the Beatles, you know, they, some argue that they became so successful because they would go and when they were younger, they played in Hamburg for like 10 or 12 hours straight totally. for, for months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so last one is uh, 
the pitch. And that's where you say, uh, bad pitches kill great ideas. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all heard them. <laughs> Every great idea needs support to go somewhere, and it's the pitch that moves a perpetual innovator's work to the next level. Great pitches paint a picture and tell the story of an idea and how to realize its potential. And I just want to read from page, I think it was 94. You write, most people pitch their great idea, but don't give people the context behind it. But Carla Johnson, I'm confused. I thought a, a great idea sells itself. Oh, oh, we know that's not the case. And and that's when we talked a little bit earlier. I can't remember what, remember what section, but it's about the context for the idea, right? So when you can bring people along yes. on the journey from what inspired you, what you observed, what pattern you distilled it into, how that relates into your work, how that inspired your idea and fits into this objective, they're like, like they have context in their brain now. You've now brought them on a story journey. And now you've told them just enough of the story to make it feel less risky because you've told them how it works in a different situation. You've also told them about the essential elements that made it work and how that directly relates into the work that you do and why you came up with that idea. So you've de-risked the idea. You've talked about the success it's already had, which makes them more excited about it. And now you've given them enough of a picture that together you can start to finalize this pitch, this project, this idea, whatever it is, and people support what they're a part of. And so you're able to finalize this idea or at least get it to the next step because you were able to connect the dots between what inspired you and the work that you do. It seems like this is the step where great ideas go to die. I agree. <laughs> I just, that speaking, was of, speaking of our friend, Michael Brenner, he actually heard those words. Oh, that's right. You talk about him yeah. in the book where he was in a department. Talk about updating your resume. Now he stuck it out. He's a, he's a, but it, it, he was like in a, he was a marketing guy, but it was in an advertising group or something. And exactly. he had a lot of great ideas as he continues to have. And uh, they said, Michael, Michael, this is where dreams come to die. Exactly. <laughs> oh, reminded me of my time in the Army. But, um, yes, you know, we all know that to be the truth. In most companies, his boss just at least said it. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. And you, uh, but the, the, the pitch seems like it's overlooked. And you've even got in there things like how to do a, you know, a one minute pitch or a, a five minute pitch. But it's, it's real. Um, it's real important to get that right. And again, this brought to mind another book for those that want to go even deeper than this fifth step uh, that was on the podcast a few years ago, uh, a book by Brant Penvidic. And it was a book called The Three-Minute Rule, Say Less to Get More from Any Pitch or Presentation. And it was fascinating. It, it, it very nicely aligned with your, uh, your chapter. He was a Hollywood executive. So he was he had done hundreds if not thousands of pitches to studio executives and he finally just wrote a book saying this is what works this is what doesn't work. So uh, in the remaining time let's just touch on a couple things from the second half of the book about how to do this across your entire organization. Couldn't do the whole book but I I wanted to just talk about those those first areas. Explain the following. Corporate culture is a fundamental roadblock or gas pedal for innovation. I think we have all run into a response of some variation or another of the following. I love the idea. I'd love to see what you do with it, 
go fill out form 651B, <laughs> have it on my desk, and I'm happy to look at what's next. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's <laughs> and like, I actually have a client who has form 651B. Oh, know, really? Like, is yeah, that yeah. And, is that related to uh, is that related to a TPS report? <laughs> yes, yes, very, very similar. <laughs> but and and that's the thing, and and that goes back to if you overprocess ideas, you're going to kill all the potential, and and it goes back to also thinking that innovation has to be complex, it has to be complicated, it has to be you know expensive. All of these ideas that come out of using the perpetual innovation process, they're not ideas that necessarily need a form 651B. It could be, you know, how do we have a more interesting Zoom call? Maybe we just give people a fun background to use. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do, you know, going back to the objective statement, it doesn't have to be an objective that needs to come up with a million dollars in business. I mean, I, and I talk about this in the book. There's a woman who worked at Park Mobile and she worked in the finance department and she needed an idea because she was spending, she and her team were spending 40 manual hours doing a, running a report that really just sucked the life out of Oh, it had to reconcile. Yeah. Yes. And so she taught herself a programming language. And instead of spending 40 hours a week, she now spends like 20 or 40 hours a month. She spends 20 minutes. You know, did she need to complete form 651B to do it? No. Does it have an incredible impact? You know, was an idea that was new, great, and reliable? Absolutely. And now if you look at ideas like that at scale, if you could get every employee to think like that, you have an incredible impact, not only financially, but also on the morale of employees because they now feel empowered and that their ideas do have an impact. And when you have happy employees who are looking for opportunities to make business better or to solve problems to make customers happy, that's an innovative company that whatever the universe throws at you isn't going to be able to saw it isn't going to be able to hold back yeah you know it occurs to me that there are a lot of people that you know maybe they feel like they are working in the office with michael scott <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and they're you know and I, I mean a lot of marketers are like you know i'm doing what i can but this company so just hard. doesn't seem to get it you know like mm-hmm. that fleshy armed cfo and i would think that if folks Folks like that who may not be the CEO, but somebody who reads this, they could actually start to perhaps surreptitiously start to lead their organization by doing a lot of the things that are in the second half of the book to try to try to affect that culture. Have you seen that done or I have. And and people think that innovation always has to happen from the top down, but it's not true. If you use this perpetual innovation process, you can absolutely start innovation as a grassroots program. And it could be something that never takes on as a complete company culture, but you'll see people and teams consistently delivering higher quality, faster work Mm-hmm. If they're able to take advantage of opportunities to solve problems, whatever it is, just by innovative thinking. And then what happens is once they practice this five-step thought process and apply it, then they start to say, okay, I, I don't even need the, you know, 
I, I have collected all these dots. I'll see a problem and bam, just like that, they have an idea. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen those people who were like, man, how did they just, I just was walking down the hall or I just said something to them as we hopped on a Zoom call. And they had four or five ideas just like that. And it's because people practice this thought process and then it reawakens their brain because remember, this is how we're naturally wired to think. Mm-hmm. And they become those, those idea generation, you know, innovation powerhouses. Yeah. And that's one of those things that, you know, that as long as you can guide it and put it in the right direction, that's always going to be powerful, whether you have direct blessing from management or not. Yeah. And also it makes you a really invaluable employee. Yes. And they might not even be able to quite figure out why they cannot uh, afford uh, to let you go. It's funny. I have a friend who's very much like this, and he works at a company. And I say, like, when you when you share these ideas, what happens internally? He goes, I'll be honest. They have no idea what to do with me. They just know they can't <laughs> fire me. Yes, yes. And I'm essentially allowed to do whatever I want because it works. And uh-huh. customers are really happy. Yes. <laughs> That is it. And let me just mention a couple of things that are in the book, though, that I think helps people to better navigate an organization where they can start to improve it, even if they're not the CEO. And one of the things you talk about is you explain that from the time we're five until about 65, (laughs) you say (laughs) society and then corporate culture teach the innovation out of you. That I think it helps people better understand the environment they're in. In other words, don't be upset that Maybe you're not seemingly in a sea of innovation, but understand why that happens. And there was another part. It was on page 162, which really got me fired up. It was about fear. You write, one thing that holds innovation back in a world of approvals, governance, and corporate compliance is the fear of failure. That is just a phenomenal section that basically helps people understand what they're up against, but I think it also helps to arm people who want to start to, I don't know, sneak some innovation into their organization. Exactly. And, and you know, that fear of failure, it's a lot of times why when people get into these generate and pitch cycles to come up with an idea, on the random chance that they do have a great idea, it makes them afraid to say it. And when they do go to pitch it, it feels like a failure because pe- their their boss or client, whoever tells them no, it's because they haven't given them context. Because remember, the more you can connect the dots for people about where you got the inspiration, where it worked before, what about it worked, how that relates to the work that you do, the more you start to chip away at people's fear of trying something new and that it will it will fail and make them look bad. Yes, yes. So Carla Johnson... If readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That innovation is everybody's business. We can no longer depend on just a handful of people to lead this. It's truly something that all of us are wired to do. And it's something that we need to look for more opportunities to make happen in the work that we do. I couldn't agree more. And it brought to mind the quote. See how you've got me thinking creatively? The (laughs) The David Packard quote one of the founders of Hewlett Packard, where he said, marketing is too important to be left to the marketing department. And 
it's the same thing with innovation. It's, it's too important to be left to a handful of people in an organization when everybody could contribute more to the uh, innovation, even the shovel operators. It's true. It's not something you do in addition to yes. your day job. It's how you do your day job. Mm-hmm. So what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book that we've, we've talked about to get them, get them doing something? I'm going to start just with the absolute fundamentals, and that's take 15 minutes and go sit someplace and observe the world around you. You know, turn off your phone, put it on, do not disturb, like literally just 15 minutes a day for the next seven days, and you will be amazed at how much that starts to activate inspiration in what you do. It, it can be at a park, it can be in nature, it can be at a coffee shop, it can be at a mall. You know, if you're at an office, you know, go sit someplace differently, but literally use all five of your sentence senses mm-hmm. and for 15 minutes, really take in the world around you. Yes. And in the book, she's not telling you something that's not in the book. Step one, observe, collecting the dots. She actually talking about you like you're not here, but uh, (laughs) Carla went to a coffee shop and she has several pages of everything she noticed. And then she pulls this same example through, but it it was interesting to see what you were, what you were observing and then what that led to. It was fascinating. I did, I did a workshop for a company here in Denver and we um, pre COVID and we went and just observed down on 16th street mall, which is a pedestrian mall. And there was a team who took an observation about hipsters with facial hair and turned it into a completely new customer experience portal or, you know, experience for a customer portal Uh from that, from that. Wow. So there's no rhyme or reason where the path leads. It's just how you work the process. It's like flexing those muscles. Now, did those hipsters with facial hair also have the hemp pants? I'm pretty sure they did. You know, okay. if you can eat your clothing, that's a that's a good sustainability thing. You see, I'm already trying to connect the dots here, Carla Johnson. <laughs> I like it. So, like it. well, what books, uh, looking back, have, have most inspired your working career, Carla? You know, the, the one that I always say is Daniel Pink's A Whole New Mind. And he was in Denver, I think, um, uh, fall of 2019. And I went with a friend to go see him and stayed to have – it was when his book um, – when came out Mm -hmm. and I waited in line so I could be the very last person to have him sign my copy of a whole new mind and when, but I had to tell him, I kept giving away the copies of his book that I had written because of that he had written because it's so applicable to so many things. And I think when we look at marketing and sales and innovation, what hit home the most about his book that I still think about so much is that we have been raised this last 120 years in the industrial environment. So it's when things became automated, the industrial revolution, um, numbers mattered, processes mattered, technology mattered, everything has moved into a left brain environment. And if we look at the educational system, and, and I talk about that and, and creativity, how it's taught and rewarded out of us through our lives, it's a reflection of that. And so if well, the thing I loved about his book is that I finally felt like, oh my gosh, somebody understands a thinker like me. Mm. And it was that ability to understand if, if you can put it into a process, if you can automate it, then you can outsource it. And especially now as we look at technology and AI, 
It's this original innovative thinking, the way the human brain connects the dots that I don't believe AI or a machine will ever be able to truly replicate. This is why I believe when you learn how to connect the dots and use this process to come up with ideas consistently, this is what makes sure that you're not laid off, yes. that you know you do have a thriving career, that you are the one that's promoted. And we forget about these things when we think about the simplicity of sitting in a park or a coffee shop for 15 minutes and the longer term impact that that has when you do it for 15 minutes every single day. Interesting. So, A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future. It looks like that was published in 2006. I haven't read it. It actually brings to mind a book that was on the show recently from Philip Kotler, Marketing 5.0. And In that book, they explain what can be automated, but all the things that can't be. (laughs) So, it starts to push you in the same direction that you were just uh, describing. Interesting. Well, thanks for mentioning that. You're welcome. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to seeing come out? Oh, absolutely. There's, um, I mean, you know, everybody, (laughs) well, this, this is, this is a new author and that I hadn't read before, but his book came out in April before mine. And it's, um, by Josh Linkner and it's called big little breakthroughs, how small everyday innovations drive oversized results. And he talks about much of the same approach that I do with innovation and ideas and how if we truly are going to be able to be competitive as you know individuals or as contributors to teams or as companies we have to understand that the path there is not through big huge disruptive innovation and thinking mm-hmm. it's through the consistency of like he says these little breakthroughs that you consistently do every single day and, and I'm just I his his writing is fascinating also. He's, oh, interesting. he's a great writer and speaker. Yeah, terrific. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable. And there's going to be a bunch of them on this episode because I mentioned several other books that were on the show. Of course, the the world famous uh, interview with Carla Johnson on authors in quarantine getting cocktails, and, and you know the sangria. I think I can't even remember. Maybe we even had the uh, recipe on there. We might have. Yeah, yeah, we might have. yeah. Or maybe it was just a figment of my imagination. But <laughs> you really held up well in this interview, despite all that pitcher uh, of sangrias <laughs> that you've been drinking all morning. So we're going to include uh, links to uh, Carla's uh, website and also on her site. You can go through and buy the book, but there's also a bunch of uh, additional resources and uh, tests and uh, things where you can analyze uh, what kind of uh, uh, an innovator you are within the organization, which we didn't have time to talk about. We'll include a link to her LinkedIn profile. To the listeners, I just want to ask one big favor. Please reach out to Carla. Go, Go to her website, go on Twitter, go on LinkedIn. Just swarm her and thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. There are so many podcasts out there, and she's even spent extra time with us. And I think it was... It wasn't just because of the sangria that's so good, but you know whatever it takes to keep these authors from you know hanging up on me. Um, <laughs> and if you're if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast and your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Rethink Innovation, How the World's Most Prolific Innovators Come Up with Great Ideas that Deliver Extraordinary Outcomes. The author is Carla Johnson. Carla, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, it was an absolute delight, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you.